keeping standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 22. The Apostle Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that it gives us. Thank you that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp for our path. For we would not know how to travel without it. And Father, thank You for this Word on the resurrection of Christ and the implication that it has for our lives. Father, send Your Holy Spirit this morning. May He move in a mighty way so that we can see the awesome implications that the resurrection of Christ has for our lives. Father, we ask these things confidently and boldly in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Wise men consider the inevitable reality of their death, while fools push the idea aside pretending that it will never happen, or at least that it will not happen for a very long time. Now, I admit that talking about death is not a very pleasant topic. A couple of years ago, I was involved in a gathering and some people were talking and apparently they had gone to church the previous Sunday And they were appalled that sometime during the message, the pastor made the observation that all of them in the congregation were going to die someday. And he said, as a matter of fact, it's a certainty that you're all going to die. Statistics tell us that the odds are one in one. 100% of you will die. And they were actually appalled that this was the topic of conversation in a church And I was thinking, well, isn't that obvious? But they were greatly offended. Why were they offended? Because we don't like to talk about death. And we really do like to pretend that it's a reality that somehow we're going to be able to circumvent. Everybody else might have to experience, but somehow I'm going to escape that day. Beloved, none of us are going to escape that day. Therefore, when it comes to death, we can have one of two approaches. 
We could be like Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. He commissioned a servant to stand in his presence each and every day and say, Philip, you will die. Imagine someone saying to that's you every day, you will die. The next day, you will die. Why did he do that? Because Philip wanted to be reminded that he's not going to live for an ever and ever. A day is coming when he will die. By contrast, we have Francis Louis XIV who decreed that the word death not even be uttered in his presence. So by contrast, he didn't even want to think about death. And he made certain that no one even talked about this subject in his death. I think that most of us are like Louis the Fourteenth rather than Philip. We would rather just avoid the subjects altogether. But we can't avoid the subjects. And I think we should think about the subject. We should realize that the day is coming. Perhaps we could do what the emperors of Constantinople used to do. At their inaugurations, a mason would come up to them and say, here are a number of tombstones that you can have. Which one would you like to have to mark your grave when you die? And then you could even have that standing, waiting, knowing that's where I'm going. Remember of Joseph of Arimathea? He, he loaned his tomb to Jesus for three days. <laughs> then Jesus said, you can have it back now. <laughs> but he had his tomb ahead of time. And imagine, he could be walking through Jerusalem. He could say, there's my tomb. That's where my body's going to be someday. Think of how that would change his life. Think of the perspective that would give him. Think of the wisdom that it would give him. In Psalm 90:12, we read, "Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom." It's good to think about the brevity of life so that we can have wisdom. But I would hasten to add this truth to death. It must also be coupled with the glorious hope of resurrection. As Christians, we don't just look forward to death. We look forward to death and resurrection. And this insight is very important for us Christians. D.A. Carson, a noted New Testament scholar, writes, Christians live in light of the end. Much of what we believe and much of the suffering we are prepared to endure derive their meaning from the prospect of vindication and resurrection. Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, why should we be blessed? Why should we rejoice? When people say evil things about us, when we're persecuted, when we're insulted. Because, as he went on to say, great is your reward in, tell me, heaven. heaven. See, we can rejoice in sufferings for the sake of Christ because we know that that's not the end. We know that a day is coming, a day of resurrection, a day of judgment, and we know that we will be rewarded. We live for something far beyond the conveniences, comforts, and pleasures of the here and now. We live ultimately for God's commendation. Ultimately, what we want to hear as Christians is, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the eternal joy of your Master. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. If you were really able to live in light of your death and the resurrection to come, do you think you would live differently today?
do you think you would live differently next week? If you could go throughout your day conscious of the fact that your life is short, that you're going to die someday, but that's not the end. God is going to raise you to new life. Do you think you would live differently? Do you think this world would have less of a hold on you? You would think you would have less of a desire to have to have and accumulate stuff now. Do you think you could let that go? Do you think you could live in such a way where you wouldn't be tormented by not having the applause and approval of man? Do you think you would be able to say, that's okay. doesn't really matter what people think because a day is coming when I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account before Him. That's what truly counts. So I ask you, do you think if you really could live in light of death and resurrection, would you live differently? I really think we would. One young man, gripped by the reality of resurrection, was William Borden. Borden was born in 1887. He was a Yale graduate and an heir to great wealth. But he rejected a life of ease in order to take the gospel to Muslims in Egypt. As a matter of fact, he even refused to buy a car. He gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. Unfortunately, after only four years of zealous ministry in Egypt, he died of spinal meningitis. And he died at the age of 25. But even though he only lived to be 25, because of his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he abandoned all that this world had, hundreds of men and women were inspired by his story and they followed in his footsteps and took the gospel to Muslims. Today in Cairo, Egypt, there's a grave of American missionaries and if you dust off the tombstones, you can still read what's written on them. And under William Borden's grave, we read this epitaph. After describing his love and sacrifice for the kingdom of God and for the Muslim people, it reads at the very end, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Isn't that beautiful? Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, and we could add, and the reality of the resurrection that he brings, there is no explanation for such a life. The only reason why he lived as he did is because he really believed in the gospel that Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the grave on the third day so that we too will rise to newness of life and it transformed his entire life. Now, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is addressing an area of concern among the Corinthians. Throughout this epistle, he addresses a number of concerns. But in this chapter, he addresses what may be the most serious of all concerns. It seems that some Christians in Corinth were actually denying the resurrection of the dead. And of course, Paul understood that such a heresy had dramatic consequences. This is what we read in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, there is no resurrection of the dead. See what Paul is saying? Christ has been proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you Christians in the church say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
Paul understands that there are frightening implications to this view. He knows that Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of dead and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. He knows that Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of the dead. If there is a resurrection of the dead, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have Christianity. If there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no Christianity. As someone once said, Christianity without the resurrection is not just Christianity without the final chapter. It is not Christianity at all. So again, I say very clearly, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. Now, Paul understands that. And in this passage, he's going to give two series of tightly packed logical arguments demonstrating that such a view that some of these Christians are holding to, demonstrating that such a view undermines the gospel, undermines the Christian faith, and brings it all down. He's going to show that you can't possibly hold to such a view if you're a Christian. Now, the first series of questions, or excuse me, of arguments, is found in verses 13 to 15. And then the second series is found in 16 to 18. And in each series, there are four implications. Let's begin at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. If these Christians want to argue that there's no such thing as resurrection because maybe there's just annihilation, maybe it's just like a candle going out, poof, you enter into a state of non-existence. If you want to argue that that's the case, then you also have to realize you're implying that even Christ has not been raised from the dead. And of course, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we have no gospel whatsoever. Because what is the heart of the gospel? Paul said it a little earlier. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and following. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What's the Gospel? Very simply, it is the death of Christ dying in our place for our sins, and then rising on the third day to newness of life, which shows that the Father accepted His sacrifice on our behalf and vindicated Jesus' entire life. But without the resurrection, that means that His death was in vain and it means that His death accomplished nothing. Therefore, if Christ didn't rise, there's no Christianity. There's no Christianity. So again, I submit to you that it's all or nothing, friends. Either we have everything in Jesus Christ or we have nothing in Jesus. And Paul is saying, if you're saying that there is no resurrection from the dead, then the first implication is that not even Christ has been raised from the dead. 
What's the second implication? And if Christ has been not raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain. Empty, useless, worthless, all for nothing. Our preaching has all been in vain. What the pastor does every Sunday morning is an exercise in futility. It's all for nothing. And then the third implication, and your faith is in vain. Not only is preaching in vain, but the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, if He's not alive, it's in vain. It's all for nothing and it will accomplish nothing. And this should frighten us. Because what is the only thing that we have to offer God? Our faith. Let me me ask you this. When you die and you stand before God in the day of judgments, and let's suppose that He says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Let me tell you what you should not say. You should not say, because I'm a pretty good guy. A pretty good guy is not good enough because the requirements of God is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, flawless living, sinless living. But even little children know that they have fallen short. They know that they have disobeyed their parents. They know that they have lied. They know that they have stolen. They know that they have taken God's name in vain. And I could go on and talk about how we hate our brothers, which is equivalent to to murder. I could go on and talk about our lust. And Jesus said, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. We don't remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We covet what our neighbor has. We gossip. We could go on and on and on. All it takes is one sin. And we're in trouble. God told Adam and Eve, You can do whatever you want. Enjoy all the creation, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do this one thing that I tell you not to do, you shall surely die. And one sin plunged the entire human race into damnation. One sin. So if you stand before God, don't say, I lived a pretty good life. Don't say, I tried really hard to do my best. There's only one thing we can say. I put my faith in Jesus Christ who died in my place and lived the perfect life that I could never live. That's all we have to offer God. And that's what the Bible says again and again and again. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So when you stand before God, the only thing you want to say is I put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's all we have to offer. But if Christ has not been raised, if our faith is in a dead Savior, it's in vain. It was all for nothing. And then a fourth implication. Paul goes on and he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So the final implication, he's just pressing forth a little more. Not only is our preaching in vain, but we are false witnesses about God. 
I can still remember before I became the pastor of this church, my last job was just down Route 12 a little bit, and I worked in a plastic shop, and we cut up plastic, and we actually molded it together. And it was, it was like a woodworking shop, but it was all plastic, and there was about a dozen guys. And I can still remember talking to a, another guy that worked there about Christ, and there was another guy across, across the plant, and he yelled out, I don't think I'll ever forget it, Don't listen to him! He's a false teacher! And he's screaming this out in front of the entire plant. This guy's a false teacher. And you know what? If Christ has not been raised from the dead, I was a false teacher. And here I am some 15 years later, still a false teacher if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And then he concludes verse 15 by saying, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So the argument has gone full circle. He begins and ends at the same place. In verse 16, he gives the second series of arguments. And 16 really is equivalent with verse 13. He's starting all over again. If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. That's the first implication. He says it again. If you really want to say that the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he continues on. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He reiterates that. Your faith is pointless. It accomplishes nothing. You are not saved. It's futile. And then he drives this home a little further by saying, you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. Which is fatal. Because it is our sins that's plunging us into destruction. And you know what? I don't think we realize how serious our sin is before God. We sometimes say, boys will be boys, right? To err is human, to forgive divine. We, we, it's just part of human nature. Nobody's perfect. We don't think it's any big deal. Matter of fact, in our culture, sin is synonymous with, with fun or tasting good, right? Sinfully delicious. That's how we describe ice cream, right? Sinfully delicious. Sin is serious. And few people understood the seriousness of sin like Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards made this observation about sin. He said, The sinner in hell would give all the world, if that were possible, just so he had one less sin to be accountable before God. The sinner would give the entire world just to have one less sin to have to give an account of before God because it's so serious. Sin is not a light matter. It is a serious matter. And then the final implications, implication in verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Their faith is in vain. They're still in their sins, which means that those who died have perished. That's a terrible thought. A little over a week ago, I officiated yet another funeral for my uncle, Jerry Benson. 
And I stood in front of a group of people. And I said, we only have one hope in the face of death. And his body was laying in a casket right behind me. I said, we have only one hope when it comes to death. And that is God's love for the world. And I did my best to simply explain John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Our only hope of not perishing but enjoying everlasting resurrection life is faith or belief in a resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. But if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Our faith is futile. Preaching is futile. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. We too will all perish. There's absolutely no hope. Which brings us to Paul's summary then in verse 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christians should either be the envy of the world or the pity of the world. Again, it's all or nothing. If it is only in this life that we have hope, but it's a vain hope, a useless hope, a deceived hope, a falseless hope, then we are pathetic creatures. And our lives are pathetic. Paul's saying, let's just be honest about it. If there's no resurrection of the dead, the Christian life is pathetic. It really is. A little later in Corinthians 15, and by the way, let me remind you that this whole chapter is his arguments about this false teaching. We just don't have time to cover it all. But a little later in this passage, he says, verse 32, right in the middle, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. What's he saying? If the dead are not raised, if if this is all you have, if this is your one only life, if you only get 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, if that's all you get, you might as well just eat and drink because that's all there is. And you know what? Many many of us, we look back in our lives and we think, wow, that's what I did. That's what I did. Before I became a Christian, when, when I was 20 years old, all I did was eat and drink. I, I just was living it up. Did some other things too. Drugs, immorality. Because I didn't think through this consciously. I didn't, you know, I'm 20 years old, I'm going to live forever. I didn't think through it consciously. But really, at the subconscious level, my mindset was, this is all there is. I might as well just party. Party hardy. That, that was my life in two words. Party hardy. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no accountability before God, why should we live any other way? We shouldn't live any other way. And if we do live any other way, we are to be pitied. William Borden is to be pitied because he squandered his one and only life. He only had 25 years and he gave up all that money to go to the mission field and advance the gospel of Christ. What a pity. What a waste. Unless Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. What does Paul say in verse 20? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, undoing his whole argument that he just gave. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first fruits of the crop would be the first bunch that's brought in, which would be a guarantee, as it were, that the rest of the harvest would be brought in. So Christ goes ahead of us in resurrection, and we will follow behind him, which is why he said in the Gospel of John, because I live, you too shall live. Because he conquered death, we can be convinced that we too shall rise to newness of life someday. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We believe in the resurrection. Why do we believe in the resurrection? Let's ask that question. Why should we believe in the resurrection? Some people think, well, this is just, you know, you guys are taking it on faith. It's just a blind leap in the dark. There's a lot of evidence for the resurrection. There really is. Previously in this passage, in verse 6, or excuse me, backing up to verse 5, Paul says that when Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. There are over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And then also what Paul said. This is really interesting. He said, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. What does he mean? Most of these eyewitnesses are still alive, although some have died. Therefore, if you don't believe what I'm saying... Go search them out. Go ask them. Is it true? Did you really see the resurrected Lord? It's true. I saw Him. More than 500 witnesses. Is there other evidence? Well, there's the empty tomb. Obviously, if these witnesses were all saying, I saw the resurrected Lord. It's true. He's risen from the dead. No, He's not. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. His body's still there. They could have said, tell you what, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a walk and let's check it out. But you know what? The tomb was empty, which means you have eyewitness accounts and you have an empty tomb at the same time. Now, why was the tomb empty? That's startling in and of itself because it was guarded by Roman soldiers who were trained military men. And if they had fallen asleep on the job, they would have lost their lives. Now, let me ask you, if you have the responsibility, I want you to guard this tomb. Don't let anybody take that body. And if anyone takes that body, you're going to be killed. Let me ask you, would you stay awake? You'd stay awake. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to drink coffee, five-hour energy drink, monster drink. Tell you what, give me one of each. I am not falling asleep. And that's not a joke because much was at stake. But Christ rose from the dead. The stone was rolled away. Christ came out. And then they had to explain, well, what happened? And then the story spread in Matthew. Well, we'll say you fall asleep, and if you get in trouble, we'll satisfy the governor so that you don't lose your lives. And then you have to explain, how about the evidence of the beginning of the church? It began with the message, Jesus died and rose again. That's what Paul said right here. That's the Gospel in a nutshell. He died for our sins, rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And thousands came to Jesus Christ. And not only did they come to Jesus Christ, but they willingly laid down their lives for Jesus Christ because they were absolutely convinced that He rose from the dead and that they would rise someday from the dead. So they went to their martyrdoms 
joyfully, many of them singing praises to God like we did this morning, knowing that there is a resurrection to come. But that's not ultimately why we should believe in the resurrection. Ultimately, we should believe in the resurrection because that is the teaching of Scripture. And you can read it a little later if you like in the the devotional that's provided for you, but I want to read just one section. Luke 16. Luke 16, 19 to the end of the chapter is a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and he goes to Hades, a place of torment. Lazarus dies and he goes to paradise, which is called Abraham's bosom. And the rich man is in torment and he asked Father Abraham if Lazarus can come back from the dead and go to his brothers so that his brothers will not come to the place of torment. And Father Abraham says, no, no, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Old Testament. And he says, no, no, but if you would send Lazarus, then they would believe. And this is what we read in 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they will not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's found right here in the pages of Scripture, they simply will not believe. It doesn't matter how much evidence you give them. It doesn't matter how much, how many arguments you line up. They will not believe. Which tells us that we need to believe in the resurrection. Not because of the eyewitness accounts. Not because of the evidence. But by primarily because of Scripture. Our faith is in the Jesus of Scripture. And it also tells us about the power of the Word of God. It's the power of the Word of God that will convince people that He's risen from the dead. So we just proclaim the Scriptures. Now, on this Easter Sunday, it's often assumed that the burden of proof for the resurrection falls upon Christians. And I want to say that I understand that as a Christian, as a minister, I understand that. We should give some evidence for our faith. We should be able to give some arguments for our faith. There should be some rationality to our belief. We shouldn't just say, well, it's just a blind leap in the dark. I just hope it's true. I just want it to be true. We should provide more than that. But it's often assumed that on Easter Sunday, this resurrection morning, that it's only the Christian who has some explaining to do. Well, if we're going to be fair, if we're going to be balanced, non-Christians, agnostics, skeptics, also have to say, well, they also have to explain the evidence. I, I've read books by atheists and I've listened to different debates between Christians and atheists. And sometimes atheists will give this argument, and I've heard this, and maybe some of you have too. Well, I'm an atheist, an atheist, which means literally no God. I believe in no God. I don't have to present any evidence. The burden of proof is on you, Christian, to present the evidence and make me believe. But the skeptic, if he's going to be honest, also has to admit, you know what? I have to explain some things as well. Otherwise, the skeptic is saying, well, I'm just hoping, I just want it to be true that there's no judgment to come. Then I can live however I want. 
See, they're not let off the hook so easily. Sometimes they think they are, but they have the same problem. They have to account for the resurrection. They have to account for the evidence. So the non-Christian denier of the resurrection, he has to answer some questions as well. For example, can they explain the birth of the church which began with the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection? Can they explain why the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty to this day? Can they explain how 5,000 plus Christians claim to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection? And again, let me remind you that they were alive just 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And that's important because sometimes it said, well, you know what happened. After a couple hundred years, the church advanced this theory that Jesus rose from the dead. No, it wasn't a couple hundred years after the resurrection of Christ. It was 20 years after the resurrection of Christ that they were preaching this message right from the beginning and the eyewitnesses were still alive. I would also ask skeptics, can you explain how Jews who believe in a single transcendent God proclaim the man, Jesus of Nazareth, his equal? Can you explain that? And you, can you explain how these first disciples willingly and joyfully gave their lives for the message, He has risen? Once again, if we're going to be fair, Christians should give an argument, but skeptics also have to give an argument. While we can be accused of just having faith in nothing, it works both ways. Sometimes skeptics just have faith in nothing as well because they want to be true. There is evidence out there for everybody to evaluate and both sides have to give an account. Now, I just challenge all of us to be open to the evidence, to be open before God. I think if, if any of us would just say, Lord, if this is true, show me we may be amazed at what God may do. And would anybody have anything to lose by saying, Lord, I'm open. God, I'm open. Would you show me the truth? Would you lead me to the truth? I, I can't think of why anybody wouldn't be courageous enough to pray something like that and to be open before God and see where the evidence might go, to see where God may lead them. You never know what God may do in your life. Now, to the Christians, I want to remind you that for Paul, this is not just doctrine. This is not dry, dusty doctrine. This is where we live day in and day out. We are to live in light of the resurrection. It's not something we come to church and we say, well, let's just kind of debate the resurrection. It's kind of an interesting topic. We can have fun with that one. This is to affect how we live. And Paul's concern was not just abstract doctrine up here in the theoretical realm. His concern was down here where the rubber meets the road. Which is why he concludes this chapter, commonly known as the resurrection chapter, with this statement. And tell you what, I'll begin in 1 Corinthians 15:54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 58, he says, therefore. And that therefore really is a summary of the entire resurrection passage. Therefore, in light of the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead, in light of the fact that perishable people will someday clothe themselves with the imperishable, in light of the fact that mortal creatures will someday put on immortality and live forever, therefore, in light of this great resurrection truth, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. It has eternal ramifications. And we should live in light of this. We should give our lives to this. Many of you are familiar with the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott and one of his workers... Mr. Fleming arrived in Ecuador on February 21st, 1952. And their goal was to evangelize the Ecuador Wadani Indians. They stayed in Quito for a while and then they moved to the jungle. They set up residence at a Shandai mission statement. Excuse me, mission station. Then a little later, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries, Ed McCauley, Roger, Eudarian, Pete Fleming, and their pilot, Nate Saints, made contact from their airplane with the Wadani Indians using a loudspeaker and a basket to pass down gifts. After several months, the men decided to build a base a short distance from the Indian village along the Curray River. There they were to approach a tiny group of Wadani Indians, and they gave one of them a ride in their airplane a man that they called George. Encouraged by these friendly encounters, they began plans to visit the Wadini without knowing that George had lied to the others about the missionaries' intentions. Their plans were preempted by the arrival of a larger group of about ten Wadani Indians. They killed Elliot and his four companions on January 8, 1956. Elliot's body was found downstream along with those of the other men except that of Ed McCauley, which was found further downstream. Why would these men risk their one and only life to take the gospel to a savage group of Indians? Because they didn't just have one life. They had an eternity to look forward to. And because of that, they could be freed up to live completely unreservedly for God, giving their lives if necessary. His journal entry for October 28, 1949, speaking of Jim Elliott, expresses his belief that missions work was more important than life. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool. He's not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain eternity that he cannot lose. He's not a fool. If this is true, Christians are not foolish. 
And it should free us up. I have to share one more story. Some of you have heard this before, but i got to tell you again, it's one of my favorites. George Patton also went to the mission field, New Hebride Islands, risking his life among cannibals. Missionaries 18 years earlier had gone to this group and they were eaten by the cannibals. Now George Patton says, I feel called of God to go to this group of people. During a church meeting, someone in the church meeting, Mr. Dickens said, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. Patton responded, Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Doesn't make any difference whether our bodies are devoured by worms or cannibals because we all are going to rise to newness of life. Now, I know I've given several examples of extreme missionaries who have given their entire lives, but I give those on purpose because if missionaries can give their entire lives and sacrifice for their lives for Christ, then I ask you, couldn't you moms do that? who are changing diapers to the glory of God? Couldn't you do that? And maybe you need to hear, your life is not in vain. Maybe some of you need need to hear it said, you're raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that they will be discipled in the faith, so that they will be sent out and serve Jesus Christ. What you're doing is not in vain. Even though the world says, but if you got a job, you can make more money. You say, I could make more money but I want to make an eternal difference. I want my life to have an eternal perspective. And those of you who are working, realize that you're doing more than just paying the bills. We're living for Jesus Christ. And and everything that we do has to have the perspective of eternity. Remember, we live in light of the end. We live in light of the day when we will stand before God and give an account of our lives. And we're not waiting for our reward in this life. We don't need it here. We need it there. So we can sacrifice here. We can say, I I can give the money now. It's okay. I can give myself to my children. I can give myself to ministry. I can give myself to missions. I'm not a fool come to church on a Saturday morning and, and study with the men. I'm, I'm not a fool to come to church and, and help them build the church. I'm not a fool to, to go to the women's study. I'm not a fool to go to the jail and give them the gospel when I could be out on the golf course. I'm, I'm not a fool to give up the extra house in order to support mission. I'm not a fool. And you know what? Sometimes we have to tell ourselves, I'm not a fool. Because the world's going to say, you're a fool. You're, you're a fool. You only get one life. Sometimes we have to be aggressive. We have to say, I'm not a fool. I'm not a, you're the fool. With all due respect, you're the fool. Because you're only living for the here and now. You're, you're living for 
70 years. What about eternity? What about eternity? We need some perspective. But if we could live in light of eternity, I think it would transform our whole lives. And it needs to. Let's just not say it could. It needs to. We need to consciously live in light of death and resurrection. We need to live in light of these truths. And if we could do that with the help of God, it would transform our entire lives. We could live like Jesus lived. To the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that because Jesus lives, we too, who have faith in Him, will live. Father, I pray that You will help us to see that our only hope of salvation is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, will You help us to see these great and awesome truths? Father, will You help us to believe? Father, we confess we need Your help to believe. Some of us might be saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, would You help those who are struggling with unbelief? And Father, for those of us who have faith, would You strengthen our faith in these truths so that they really could grip us? So that they really could be the anchor that stabilizes our Christian life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.